some writers will say, you know, I see a really cool chart, but I can't click on it. You know, it's a PNG doing the rounds online. It would take me half an hour to find the sourcing, so forget it. But the cool thing about open access is whenever you create a chart, like there's always a backlink, you can always access the data set and you can see what other people have come up with an insight on that data set. You know, we can look at the same data sets and come up with different insights. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing here at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Alex Demianu, founder and CEO of Open Access, a company that allows you to tell stories with data. We invested in them out of Vitalize Angels. They're also a tech stars portfolio company. We dive into all aspects of him starting and growing this company. Let's get to it. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. And with open access for people who aren't familiar, just overview, what is open access? Yeah, open access is a data storytelling platform. We're simplifying and democratizing the entire data storytelling process so you can easily find, visualize, and collaborate with data to tell stories. I've seen mock-ups and different things you've had already on this product with ways people have used open access, which is really interesting. I imagine a, a thousand other use cases for this, but I want to go back to the beginning. So why start this company in the first place, Alex? Yeah, great question. Um, I've never done this before, so that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> probably a couple of reasons. One would be um, the the zeitgeist of 2020. So it was the elections. There was a lot of sort of misinformation out there and disinformation. Um, my previous gig, I was uh, the national policy director for Andrew Yang's presidential campaign. If you guys remember him, the guy with the math hat very sort of data-driven policies. And, um, you know, that was part of our ethos. And we realized that, um, you know, despite all this sort of data-driven um, approach it would take to policymaking, um, we had a very poor level of data literacy and transparency, whether it's within society and electorate or even within organizations. Um, so that experience made me realize, okay, there has to be sort of a, a simple way for people to understand data and tell stories with data because, Fundamentally, everyone wants to understand, right? They want to understand themselves, their work, uh, the world. And data is a pretty fundamental piece of that, right? It's a driver of progress. But it seemed like, you know, existing tools at the time were just too complicated or technical for uh, other people who just wanted to understand. Um, and one really cool thing that actually happened that triggered sort of the idea of having what's open access in terms of the community of data explorers and storytellers is that um, the Yang Gang, as they were called, um, sort of yeah. our fervent ardent supporters would um, take the data from our policies like universal basic income, and they would actually go on our subreddit and create their own charts. They were kind of de facto creating a community where they were collaborating. Oh, what about this? What about that? And, and it, it reached a point where I would check often to see what they would come up with because we had a small team. Um, and I thought, wow, what a cool way to crowdsource insights and collaborate around data. Why don't we do this more often? Um, so that coupled with the year... Um, and, um, and meeting my two amazing co-founders led us to try to figure out a way to, yeah, simplify data storytelling. There's a lot I want to dive into with that. One that we can't just gloss over, Andrew Yang's presidential campaign. How did you get on that? How did that come about? Like, take me through that. Yeah, that's another story. Uh, cause I had also <laughs> never been in a presidential campaign before. Um, I mean, for really quick context, uh, I'm a political economist. I started my career at the UN in the United Nations. I spent five years abroad in Africa and the Middle East. Um, which was a lot of fun, mostly consulting uh, government to find ways to improve foreign direct investment. Um, came back to the U.S., started my own macroeconomic and geopolitical research firm, 
um, it's kind of cool when you try to paint a picture of what's happening in the world and you kind of mix a bit of macro analysis, political risk, applied history, and then you say, okay, well, based on what we think is happening in the world, how will that affect asset prices? The work is very interesting, but the output, in my opinion, sucks because <laughs> you're just trading <laughs> in the markets and there's no value creation. Yeah. So I got so discouraged after doing that for a couple of years that I kind of wanted to do something else. And um, then I saw the elections were happening in 2020. Andrew Yang popped up as this you know, non-ideological problem solver, very data-driven. And what I had experience in my career to, to that date was you know, data is sort of a foundation for truth and progress, but it's very hard to uh, first have like access clean data or, or, or primary data, especially in those emerging markets. But secondly, just to tell stories and understand data. So I, I said, hey, this guy at least is trying to do something from a policy driven approach, right? Like I, I see the world as a social contract of government, private sector and civil society. I think data is is used well in the private sector, somewhat in the civil society, but not very well in policy. So the fact that he was trying that I thought was really appealing. Um, I had never donated to a candidate before, but I donated for the first time. Uh, <laughs> I really went down the rabbit hole. I, I read his book, Smart People Should Build Things, which I think is an ode to entrepreneurship. Everyone should read that. Um, and secondly, The War on Normal People, which was essentially his, his uh, platform about universal basic income and a more human-centered capitalism. Um, Reddit did all that stuff, went on the subreddit, created, I didn't even have a Reddit at the time. I just created an account <laughs> to get involved. Um, and I found out that he was having a fundraiser in, in Brooklyn. So I said, okay, I'm just going to show up and see what happens. It was before the first uh, Democratic debate. I show up, um, I meet him and his team. It's clear that none of them have also ever done it before, but, um, you know, they're all very excited. And, um, you know, I chat with him and then as I'm leaving, um, we're leaving at the same time. Um, and uh, his Uber arrives before mine and he's like, hey, Alex, you know, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I'm going midtown. It's like, oh, me too. Hop in. So um, I get in the Uber. I spend 20 minutes chatting with Andrew Yang about, you know, him, myself. Um, and I kind of just sort of pitch myself and say, hey, I would love to help you for free. You know, like I'm a political economist. I, I can help you with some domestic but also foreign policy. Um, you have some amazing ideas for uh, domestic policy, um, maybe a bit light on foreign policy. Happy to help you for free. And he was like, OK, that's great because we don't have that much money at the time. Um, <laughs> So um, I and then I met with his team and him the next week. And I was actually so excited, Justin, and I wanted to show so much value that I put together two decks, two 50 slide decks full of data and charts using basically data to tell a story about the country with my unsolicited ideas. Um, and when I got into the meeting and met him and his team afterwards, I ended up getting offered a job that I didn't even know existed was to be sort of the, the policy director and sort of take over the entire kind of um, policy platform at that point. And it was awesome. I did it for five or the last five or six months. Um, you know, uh, at that point, he had his main policy planks, but we had to do the big stuff after, like healthcare, and, uh, foreign policy, climate change, regulating tech. Um, so you never know, I guess, in life, a bit of perseverance <laughs> and a bit of luck and, and cool stuff happens. Always be ready, I guess. Always ready to take advantage of the moment. That's amazing. That and I had no idea that was the context of how you got that role, which is ridiculous, Alex. By the way, um, <laughs> and the timing and everything. One thing too, you mentioned. Obviously, you mentioned the the time you spent in the Middle East and Africa as well. Like in that time, so you have that as well. But also with the work you did on smart cities. That's another part of your kind of background. I just have so many questions. But with that, take me through that work a little bit what the involvement with that, because I think it's going to tie back into, you know, what you're obviously seeing today with open access. Yeah, the smart cities in, in the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. So that's also another serendipitous route. Um, I was consulting for a few years across different countries, 
I was in South Africa, Ghana, Kenya, Abu Dhabi, and then Saudi Arabia. And then once I was finishing up that role in Saudi Arabia, um, one of our, the, the sort of clients offered me a job to work on this big project. Um, he was he's uh, was like a billionaire prince, but an eccentric one that was very private sector focused, so really no relation to the government at all. His name is Prince Awali bin Talal. I'm sure you'll find him somewhere. He's a big um, investor in Twitter and Snapchat. Um, went to Syracuse too, like super Western dude. Um, and he's like, you know what? I want to build a brand new city, a $20 billion smart city. I want it to be for the next generation of, of Saudis, especially the young ones who are, who are studying abroad and coming back. Um, I want to really bring this country to the next cent- uh, 21st century, et cetera. We're going to have the tallest tower in the world, um, but I want it to really be sort of a smart city that's um, just very functional. Um, and I was sort of bought into the idea. I thought it was really cool. Um, so uh, I took the job and and um, became sort of the head of research for this for this massive project that was planned to take many years. Um, and the idea was to honestly, when you have also like a pretty big, big budget, you can try a lot of stuff. So we invited almost everyone from Silicon Valley to come and just like try to test their ideas with us, like the Hyperloop, yeah, yeah. like anything you can think of. We were like, let's try yeah. it out over here. But the general idea behind smart cities is um, just having everything with Internet of Things, the IoT, everything integrated, everything sort of seamless for, um, yeah, the next sort of 21st century worker. With all those experiences, so all of that background, there's more we didn't get into, we just don't have time. But with all of that leading you to obviously open access, and you mentioned your co-founders, how did you meet your co-founders? Yeah, um, that's a cool story too. Um, it was during the pandemic, right? Um, and we actually met through like a virtual sort of matchmaking of different um, potential founders, people who were interested in this. And the only reason why I even showed up to that was one, I saw this problem during the campaign that was bothering me. Um, two, I wasn't <laughs> super interested in potentially helping out. The, I was helping out the Biden campaign a bit, but I wasn't super interested in going the administration route if he won. Um, but we met a lot of tech people in the campaign and I, I had very little background in benchmark be, before this. Um, and I was excited about the idea of using technology to solve this problem and something that I hadn't really tried before. And a friend of mine said, you know, why don't you try to find some co-founders, brainstorm, see what happens. I'm not technical. I don't know much about software engineering, or at least I didn't at the time. Yeah. And I kind of went into this matchmaking thing. Um, I think it was an antler in New York. And I met Patrick, uh, who is our, one of our co-founders, and Andrew. And pa- it was great because so Patrick's a data scientist, and he's a full-stack developer engineer. Uh, he was at Via Transportation and also the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. And Andrew uh, was at Microsoft. He's a, our product developer designer. He's our chief product officer, Harvard Stanford guy. You have to have one of those, I think, on the team. Um, and <laughs> and uh, you know we had like complementary skill sets. Um, you know, like I'm the economist. I can do sort of the, the CEO stuff. And then Patrick's the builder. And then um, Andrew's a designer. I don't know what the phrase is: hacker, hipster, hustler, or something like that. <laughs> so we had we'll complementary skill sets, but like very similar values and sort of the vision of you know a more uh, data open world. So we're like, let's try it. Why not? We have nothing to lose. <laughs> um, built a prototype, did some testing, got into Techstars. Um, and yeah, here we are. There's a lot I want to dive into with that. But one thing that in particular with what you just mentioned too, uh, take me through your go to market where you're thinking, obviously you, you build this thing out. You, there's a lot of early stage founders who are going to think about, you know, how to go to market. What's the best way to go about it. I know I've been following along because, uh, we invested, uh, by as angels. So I'm curious for you, what, take me through that go to market decision to go I know the background, how you did it and what you did with that. Take me through that. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's something we struggle with at the beginning because we saw as okay, let's let's make data visualization simpler. That seems to be the core issue with data storytelling. Uh, we all had experiences within organizations and enterprises, so we said, okay, let's go to the enterprise. Perhaps like the marketing team or the communications team, those non technical departments will um, will need us, right? It seemed like it was like a last mile problem within the enterprise, and we did a lot of customer discovery, and we realized, yeah, that that is the case. There's a the data team is a pretty big bottleneck, and these other non technical teams, even though they're expected to use data for their work from you know, sales, customer success, marketing comps, struggled. Um, but we realized that uh, going directly to enterprise or enterprise sales is a very long cycle. And yeah. usually the CTO or the data team, they don't, they don't see the problem. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, we're fine. We have code or Tableau. Um, whereas like the marketing comps teams are crying. Um, so we said, okay, like we don't really have the resources to go directly in enterprise. Um, but is there something else we can do? Because a few of them were actually like former writers and journalists. And they would kind of point us to the direction of, you know, like in the media industry, a lot of people, a lot of writers are leaving, like the New York Times, Washington Post to start their own sub stacks. And they don't have teams anymore to help them. Maybe you can jump on that trend. So we started talking to the writers. And uh, this, this is like a year ago. So sub stack is really growing at this point. And um, we realized, yeah, okay, they have the same problem. They, they produce content, you know, every day. And they can barely use Excel, let alone like the other tools. <laughs> So they want something that can create charts quickly, but also they can do their research. So we thought, okay, this could be an interesting go-to-market because it kind of mirrors like a bottom-up approach that other companies have done where we kind of like Trojan horse it into the enterprise. So you kind of consumerize a product under a freemium model, get a free version, get a lot of users, and then you can figure out ways to convert them into paying users in a paid tier or in a, an enterprise tier. And we realized that a lot of the the audience of the writers. So the writers are, are going to market because they're a cash flow positive marketing channel. Like they're actually even paying us to produce content. And when they push out that content to their audiences, it creates a lot of feedback loops and user generated content and network effects. And that drives signups. And we realize that those, so not only are they doing the work for us to get, to get the audience, <laughs> yep. but secondly, their audience is actually people like us who work like in the enterprise, who work in these departments that, are, that will start using it themselves and then kind of drag it in. Um, we saw it work with TradingView. Um, we have actually one of our other investors also, I think they're also in Chicago, uh, math, um, <laughs> uh, invested in TradingView. They had the same, very similar go-to-market and it worked. Um, we saw it with GitHub, um, even to an extent Slack. So um, we went for it and we're actually executing it right now. So it's been really interesting. How have you been going about that just in terms of reaching out, figuring out who you want to reach out to that process as well? Because uh, you're obviously starting from zero, but you have this interesting background, this interesting company. Like, Take me through that side of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and something that might come up is we're realizing we're having a cold start problem too a little bit. So it's like some people yeah. want to have content on the platform, but if there's no content, then they won't really use it. I think Reddit had a very similar issue. Um, yeah. But in terms of like outreach, um, we went directly to the top Substack writers. We 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 did some data scraping. Uh, we said, yep. okay, which content uh, producers use data or charts or statistics? We reach out to them, kind of like survey them, see what their issues are, um, and then then we did that. And we were like, okay, there's a big need here. This is great. But then it wasn't narrow enough. I thought it was narrow enough to do Substack writers, <laughs> but apparently it wasn't niche enough. It's like, okay, but which topic are they talking on? Is it economics? Is it politics? Is it culture? Is it um, climate change or healthcare, that's a lot of data sets, right? So yeah, then we realized, okay, and then based on what you just alluded to, my background is that, okay, well, a lot of writers do current events. A lot of them do a lot of economics. Politics is very popular. I have that background too. Um, let's focus sort of there at the moment. 
And that's kind of like the beachhead we're kind of going for. Um, but we also have to be nimble to sort of what is um, uh, sort of salient news, like what's happening in the news and what people want to talk about. The easy thing about starting with economics is there's already a lot of publicly available data. So that's kind of part of the go-to-market, just a lot of public data. Um, and then if you want to bring in proprietary, do that after. But economics is pretty easy. Um, and then we're actually going to do some political as well. It's, it's a midterm year. People like talking about politics. So it might be a mix of economic data, maybe some polling data. Um, and with my background, that's obviously quite helpful too. Um, and back to the cold start, we're going to start producing some content our, ourselves as well to sort of get people on the platform. So a writer will come on and say, like, this is great. I love this tool. Um, but where do I start? Where I need to get the data first. <laughs> so we have to help them like find data, help them clean the data as well and to start generating content. And then over time, other people will indirectly have, have created clean data sets for you to build upon their work. Um, because some writers will say, you know, I see a really cool chart, but I can't click on it. You know, it's a PNG doing the rounds online. It would take me half an hour to find the sourcing, so forget it. But the cool thing about open access is whenever you create a chart, like there's always a backlink, you can always access the data set. And you can see what other people have come up with that, uh, an insight on that chart, on that data set, sorry. You know, we can look at the same data sets and come up with different insights. So if I find a data set on climate change and I see, wow, there's 14 different other people create charts in that. Oh, wow, that leads me to your, to your Substack or to your media company. So then it becomes almost like a distribution channel for your content or acquisition channel for, for you to get more subscribers. So that's been really interesting that we kind of didn't really expect um, in terms of building content and, and community. Um, but also now with uh, Ukraine is obviously quite popular now. So we're trying to also kind of aggregate some stuff on Ukraine. And given my background, I'll probably put some some content out there on, on sort of geopolitics, which is an industry that is usually qualitative. So it's very interesting to see a more quantitative approach to understanding what's happening. Double clicking on that community aspect of it as well. How are you thinking about that side of the business with open access, how that's going to be powerful for you moving forward? I'd be curious to know more. Yeah, definitely. So um, we're more and more becoming like a Pinterest or Instagram for data and charts. Like I didn't really think we'd do like the social media thing, but it's very interesting because people do want to collaborate. Um, And I think the community is going to be sort of our our competitive moat sort of going forward. Um, The the first point is you have to have like a a small uh, like niche community. So like really just have a few people who love you and also create the content. Um, But it also has to be a bit unique. So um, that's why we're targeting some of the top writers who talk about politics or economics and tapping into their sort of reader base and see how they kind of collaborate. Um, We think very similar to like a Reddit or Wikipedia, you'll just have like a small percentage of people creating and then a large percentage of people consuming. But we also want to see what that looks like in terms of consumption. Like how does one collaborate around a data set or chart? Like how do you remix the data set or chart? So that's something we're going to keep an eye on. But generally speaking, in terms of community, provide something that's valuable. In this case, it's usually like a unique data set and provide people a tool to actually contribute. So the easy chart creator um, and sort of see what happens. Because other places like you have, like it's just a one-sided publishing. Like if you're publishing data sets and content, that's cool. But if you're not giving me the tools to actually collaborate, then you know what's my incentive? Um, and that's another thing. Like how do we incentivize people to contribute <laughs> to the community? Exactly. Um, some existing communities like TradingView or even like Dune Analytics that does sort of uh, for crypto, the incentive for me to contribute is financial, right? Like I want to make money in the markets. That's why I'm kind of contributing. So for ours, that incentive doesn't really exist. So like, why would you want to contribute um, to this open source community? We're trying to understand that now. There's a few things that are popping up. One is you just really love it. <laughs> like you're just like this nerd <laughs> who like really wants to like contribute. It's just um, cool, yeah. 
and that's why it's important to get like the, the niche community first of people who like love a topic. Um, secondly, um, you might be looking for a job. You want to kind of like put yourself out there in the shop window. Um, you want to be like a data influencer and show everybody your analysis. Um, or third, yeah, like create your own brand and your own sort of, um, uh, yeah, your brand and, and your audience around it. So those are a few things that we're trying to explore in terms of incentives. Um, and people also just love sharing charts with each other. So if we can give them the second level, giving the data as well and the tool, I think that um, that also gives them the the opportunity to show off, like, look what I did. Yeah, definitely a better a better uh, content in terms of if you look at newsletters and everything. You have that it's it's more rich media, having charts and data sets and everything, et cetera, that people can see. You're like, oh my gosh, like look at this thing; it's much more shareable. And obviously, on Twitter, that's what you're looking for. Things that get retweeted, so you have that access as well. With with what you're doing too, just take me through where you look at the future in terms of this fitting into work. Obviously, we're investing in future work at Vitalize. We focus on that. That's why we brought you in. Where do you see this fitting in terms of as it moves forward, as it progresses, and big vision for how this fits in like the future of work with open access? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the collaborative nature is going to be really important for the future of work. Being able to collaborate around data and, and charts to this point hasn't been easy, especially across departments. So as we go through our bottom-up approach and get into the enterprise, um, we're going to offer sort of this collaborative, collaborative tool in-house. So like, you know, if you're the comms department or sales department, you can easily like ask another department about a data set or chart and create your own instead of having the bottleneck that, sort of, that currently exists. So that's that's the one internal use case. But now at that point, this massive public community has already been created. So you can tap into it if you want to. So like, oh, if you want to find some external public data or charts or get some sort of um, inspiration, you can do that as well and then pull it into whatever you want to do uh, internally. And secondly, now because the big community exists, now you have a content marketing distribution platform. So if you're the comms and marketing team that's creating PDFs that nobody really reads, um, now you have a way to distribute it in bite-sized pieces to them. But in terms of future of work, yeah, it's just much more collaborative. Um, You know, it's not messy Excel sheets, version 8, 9, and 10 that gets sent back and (laughs) forth or like, you know, trouble with databases. It really kind of, I'll say it again, like it's like a last mile tool where like anybody, regardless of your technical ability, um, you'll be able to collaborate uh, within your organization on data and charts, very similar like the Figma with design, for example. One thing I just want to take a giant step back here for a second. So you've obviously mentioned your experience varied across a lot of different things. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about is your attempts to go like professional soccer well, <laughs> another, day, another day as well. But what I wanted to, I'm curious about with your experience now as this is your first company. Yeah, I had a consultancy for macro macro geopolitical uh, risk, but that's more traditional. So this is my first, I guess, yeah, first yeah. startup, tech startup. Yeah. yeah, just take me through where your head's at. What's uh. the challenges <laughs> you've been going through? Just like give me the realness, Alex. Like this is first tech startup. Uh, I love hear any insights or uh, anything from your experience so far. Yeah, absolutely, great question. So as you like point out, like I've had a, I think I've done some pretty interesting stuff. It's been a roller coaster. Um, yes, I mean, none of this would have happened if I didn't fail at trying to go pro in soccer when I first graduated <laughs> from undergrad. But um, I will say, despite all the experiences, this is by far the hardest thing I've ever done. It, it's, it's very hard, but it's also the most fulfilling. Like to be able to do something with, you know, awesome people I work with that all could get, you know, really big paying jobs if they wanted to. We're like, you know, slumming it, trying to figure this out because... <laughs> It's, it's fun, it's worthwhile, and it's fulfilling, and there's, there's a massive vision. Um, that being said, like, I'm learning very fast about a lot of sort of um, 
frameworks. Um, I think talking to other founders has been immense. I think having awesome investors like like you guys has also been very helpful. Um, but it's it's uh, it's tough. It's a, it's a roller coaster. I'm learning also to wear many hats. Obviously, right? There's not a lot of people. Um, yep. But I think um, uh, understanding uh, how to work with your teammates is very important. I don't think there's a cookie cutter solution. I think you have to understand the qualities and idiosyncrasies of your um, teammates and sort of uh, mold around them. So we've created frameworks and processes to make us sort of go go fast. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's talking to users is actually a lot of fun. Um, and I think yeah. something that that kind of comes across in my background is just a lot of uh, curiosity. So like I love learning about different people or different things. So if I get a chance to talk to users every day, like what do you like? What is a problem? I think that's been really fun. Um, not so fun is maybe them not like answering an email or onboarding with you. <laughs> um, or um, I don't, don't want to say lie, but it's very interesting when people give you feedback verbally versus when they give you feedback, feedback using the product. So I'm learning about that as well. I'm learning about the whole product market fit process. So it's been super fun, but also very stressful, but I wouldn't have it any other way. It's an impossible uh, open question to answer. So I appreciate you, you sharing all of that as well. And I know we're almost out of time here. So where's the best place for people to learn more about Open Access and connect with you if they'd like to as well, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so openaccess.com, it's uh, open A-X-I-S. I'm sure you'll get the whatever, double <laughs> on ponder there, whatever. Um, uh, and then on Twitter, I have uh, Alex underscore um, Damiano is my last name. Um, and you'll find us also on Instagram and, and LinkedIn. We're going to start pumping out a lot more content, so that should be fun. And we have our uh, private beta, so you can sign up for the beta waitlist and probably get access immediately, actually. So, yeah. Perfect. Alex, thank you so much for the time today. A lot of fun. <laughs> thanks, Justin. A lot of fun, too. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc. Or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.